hosted on dimlywit.com. I'm Alex. And I'm Tina. And this is Obsessed with the Best. We're two New York City gals who are bringing you the best of the best of all things beauty, wellness, and inspirational women. We've tried it all and can't wait to tell you what's worth obsessing over. Join us each week as we share our favorite products and trends and chat with leading female founders and experts. Welcome to Obsessed Obsessed with with the Best with with Alex and Tina. Tina. Today we're chatting with Dr. Stephanie Ortiz-Page. Dr. Stephanie is a born and raised New Yorker who currently practices obesity and diabetes medicine. She's helped hundreds of patients lose weight and improve or reverse their diabetes and metabolic syndrome. Dr. Stephanie is now a diplomat of the American Board of Obesity Medicine and the medical director for a metabolic weight loss program in Western Connecticut. She is passionate about preventing chronic disease by promoting a healthy lifestyle of nutrition and self-care. Please welcome Dr. Stephanie. Okay, so Stephanie, what does it mean to be metabolically healthy? What does that term actually mean? All right, so metabolic health, uh, it's a it's a kind of a loaded two-word term, right? What is it? And it's and it's come into light a lot more, especially in the last year and a half, year and a half plus with COVID and it being it affecting um, more people that are not metabolically healthy. And this is where weight and obesity has really come into shedding a lot more light for everybody. So being metabolically healthy essentially means being free of metabolic disease. So those are things like prediabetes, type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, insulin resistance, fatty liver disease, heart disease. And it really comes down to a real, like a a cellular level, right? When we're talking about general health and it's looking outside of what your skill is reading or what size pants you wear, but really what's going on inside. How is our body maintaining homeostasis? So homeostasis means keeping things at a steady state. Our body likes to keep things always at a steady state. And when things are not at a steady state, that's where maybe you have some inflammation or you're not feeling well, or maybe you have a fever or you're having some joint pain, right? Maybe something's a little bit altered or your GI, you know, maybe you're having some bowel issues, right? So it means that there's some kind of imbalance. So our body's always trying to maintain balance in constant normal levels of water, for instance, our electrolytes always want to stay within the same range. So those are like your sodium, your potassium, magnesium levels, our hormone levels like insulin, growth hormone, cortisol, which is our stress hormone. And when one pathway is altered, that's where diseases like type 2 diabetes can can happen. And risk factors for metabolic disease or to not be metabolically healthy is if your blood sugars are elevated, if you're kind of showing elevated, we call elevated fasting blood sugars. So if those are ranging above 100, if your triglycerides are high, so hot, which means our fatty acids, acids um, in our body? Are they greater than 150? Are your good cholesterol levels low? So that's your HDL. Um, Is your blood pressure elevated? So, you know, that's considered when it's above 130 over 80 consistently. And also where are you carrying your weight? Waist circumference is a big risk factor also for metabolic disease. Are you carrying more fat in your belly area? I can already tell this is an episode where we're all going to want to take notes. <laughs> yes. So pull out your yeah, notepad. Get your notepad out. Um, okay. So I also want to know when you were training, did you notice that there were some things missing with how doctors are treating patients who struggle with their weight, who struggle with metabolic disease? 
Definitely. I mean, so I trained actually in a very busy, diverse inner city. I trained at Jamaica Hospital in Queens. So I saw, you know, a, a fairly sick patient population. And I think I had really strong training. I trained in family medicine. I did primary care. So I did a lot of inpatient, outpatient um, practice. And one of the things I, I actually did my research in obesity, in obesity um, during my uh, residency training. But after leaving training and going and practicing on my own, I felt like I still wasn't prepared, you know, to talk to patients about their weight to, you know, we were always treating, okay, let's treat the high blood pressure. Let's treat the diabetes. But we weren't always so quick to, you know, asking patients, why is this happening? You know, let's talk about your nutrition. Let's talk about your lifestyle, what's going on at home. Um, so, you know, in training, but more so after training is where I realized where there was like a really big gap, you know, and, and there was also no time uh, to, you know, we're seeing patients in a 10 to 15 minute time slot, and there was no time to really go in, to get down into the nitty gritty of what's going on at home. It was just easy to just, let me just start, keep prescribing you medications for your diabetes and your blood pressure, but not finding out what's really going on. I feel like there's such a, an idea of like somebody who might be carrying more weight goes into the doctor's office for 10 to 15 minutes for their consultation. And the first thing is like, well, you need to lose weight. And it has nothing to do with any of those other right. symptoms that they're describing. So when you're working with your your patients, what how do you define a healthy weight? And what is a healthy weight? What How can we define that? <laughs> Um, so it's a good question. And I get that a lot, you know, patients ask me, but then I ask them, really, I return the question to them, you know, where do you want to be? Where do you feel the most healthy at? Um, you know, and healthy weight is so individual, is so individualized, right? Um, there's a BMI scale. So BMI is a body mass index scale. And, if, and, you know, it takes into consideration your weight and your height and your and sometimes even your gender. Um, and how do you feel about the BMI scale? Yeah. Do you like, cause some people are like, it's a bunch of. So I, yeah. I, I use it. I have a chart in my, in my okay. room and it's a way to classify, right? So if it's a BMI from 25 to 29, then we're going to classify as overweight. They're above 30. We're already in the obesity range. However, I don't like to dwell on that. It's more of a classification stage to, to diagnose, right? To see, okay, maybe there's some risks here. Um, um, gotcha. But for a healthy weight, you know, it's, it's really comes down to where do you feel the best? What weight are you don't have any risk factors, right? So at what weight do you have normal blood sugars? Is your blood pressure controlled? You know, is it going to be at that 25 quote unquote BMI, or maybe 27 is, is the right weight for you or 28 is the right weight for you, for you to be able to maintain. The other reason why I don't love the BMI scale is because it doesn't take into consideration your muscle mass. So somebody can be, you know, five, three and 140 pounds and be considered in the overweight range, let's call that. But, you know, their waist circumference is down, they're carrying higher body mass, uh, muscle mass, the weights, the scale is going to read a little bit higher, right? So it doesn't take into consideration um, those factors. So I don't, I don't, I use it to classify, but I don't use it as targets for my patients in terms of identifying what their healthy weight is. That's a really excellent way 
way to, to put that. Like, don't don't live by that chart. Don't live and die by that chart. Take it with a grain of salt. Yes. But you can also use it as some sort of measurement right. if it if it makes for sense. tracking purposes. Yes, but gotcha. um, actually, in my clinic, we do you know we do check weights at every visit, but we also do measurements because a lot of times patients will come in the weight maybe is down a pound or half a pound, but they've lost an inch from their waist or an inch from their hips. And honestly, to me, that matters more than what the scale is reading. And I tell patients that every single time they come in. And what does the term weight bias mean? Because I've heard you talk about this and it is really interesting to me and I kind of want you to walk us through it. Yeah, absolutely. So weight bias, this is very, it's actually a very big issue in all industries, as you probably know. Yes. But it's having a negative attitude, stereotype, or judgment towards somebody, towards an individual because of their weight, right? So it could be something that's very overt or it can be something that's very subtle. And you can see it in every industry. You see it in education. You see it in the arts and theater industry. You see it in the corporate world. It could be even from buying a car or getting into a plane, right? You can experience some type of bias because of your weight there. And you can see it even, unfortunately, within your family and friends and in healthcare. And healthcare is probably the biggest place that we see it in the biggest issue, right? Because patients are sometimes not going in to get treated for their weight, or they're scared to go in to go in for their routine screenings because they're, you know, fearful of their doctors judging them, or they have been judged, right? You mentioned something earlier about, you know, a patient that's carrying extra weight, they come in and the doctor automatically assumes it's because of your weight, you know? you know, your, you know, your belly pain is because of your weight. And then a lot of things sometimes can get missed, right? So we, there's higher rates of cancer, there's higher rates of heart disease, there's higher rates of metabolic disease in patients with obesity, because yes, you are, you do have potentially have more risk factors, but I think a lot of it has to do with patients not going in and getting screenings because of the, this uh, weight bias. So, I mean, I feel like there's such a misconception too for people living in larger bodies that they don't might not have eating disorders or might have might not have body dysmorphia or or we only associate, you know, not eating or or not nourishing ourselves with people living in smaller bodies, which I don't think is the case. And can I mean, can you confirm <laughs> that you can be overweight and absolutely. undernourished? Absolutely. And what does that look like? Yeah, absolutely. And I see that all the time. I mean, um and there's also people that are normal weight. There's actually a lot of people that are normal weight and undernourished mm-hmm. as well, but carrying extra weight and not eating the right foods, under eating, you know, um, eating very low calorie diets and not losing weight, um, eating highly processed foods, you know, even at a small amount certainly can be undernourishing the quality of the foods also that you're eating. Um, so, you know, certainly can be undernourished even when carrying um, extra weight. Um, and with that, actually, interestingly enough, um, there was a study published in 2018 that showed that only 12% of Americans are metabolically healthy. So that just wow. shows you that, you know, most Americans are undernourished in some way, shape or form, and they're showing signs of metabolic disease, not just related to weight. And has the science changed in your opinion? Like, I feel like it used to be restrict calories, low calorie foods, and that used to be used to equate that with maintaining healthy weight and health. But how has the science changed with maintaining healthy weight, with weight loss, in your opinion? Or has it? 
No, yeah, I think we've come a long way, um, you know, especially with defining, um, you know, obesity as a disease process and, and understanding that it's not just calories in, calories out, right? So the doctor, you know, you go see your doctor, and they're like, just, you know, stop eating or cut down what you're eating and go move around more. And we know that that's, it's not so simple, right? It's not so simple to, to lose weight that way. And it's more so, in my opinion, is where are your calories coming from? Right. So in general, for weight loss, some form of calorie deficit is usually needed. Um, however, I see patients coming in, you know, they're following, you know, whatever diet app or nutrition tracking or calorie tracking app, and they're keeping at 1100 calories a day, and they're not losing weight. And, you know, we go into the nitty gritty. I'm, I'm not a dietitian, but I do a lot of nutrition counseling as a weight management specialist with my patients, along with my dietitians. And you start going into what are they eating? What are you, you know, what types of foods are you eating? Are you eating adequate you know, protein? Are you getting fibrin? Are you getting good fats in? And we change around their macronutrient profile, meaning, you know, changing the percentage of their calories coming in from carbohydrates, proteins, and fats and fiber. And sometimes the calories, total calories actually go up and they start losing weight. So it's really more on the quality of the foods that you're getting or that you're consuming that can really affect, you know, certain weight, weight hormones. So one is insulin, so, you know, what's going on with your sugar fluctuations during the day? What's your, insulin, insulin is the hormone that regulates blood sugar. And it can be, it can promote weight if you're insulin resistant, right? If you're producing high levels of insulin. So sometimes just some simple macronutrient changes can really help with, with weight loss. So the whole idea of, you know, go on a super low calorie diet and that's how you're going to lose weight. I think that's certainly changing, which is good. It's so true. I mean, when we were all little, does, do any, do we remember talking about healthy fats as much as we do now? I didn't hear about that at all. Oh, it was all low fat. It was all yes. low and fat, no fat, exactly. reduced and fat. How much better yeah. do we all feel with some avocado, chickpeas, and olive oil in our lives? Oh, you my know? God, yeah. So much. Yeah. Well, and you were speaking a bit about we, uh, hormones and how that affects our weight. As women, especially, we know that every month our hormones are changing how we fluctuate. I just learned about this new hormone about hunger, and I'm going to probably say it wrong. Is it called ghrelin? Ghrelin. Is that the hormone? <laughs> what is ghrelin? Can you talk to us? What is it? Yeah. And explain and that to us. And it's funny that you say new because it is kind of new. It was just discovered in, I think it was 1999. So just in the last 20 years it was discovered. Um, so growing, I like to call it like our go hormone. It's our hunger hormone. It's released from cells in your stomach lining. And it's one of the hormones that stimulates. So we have an appetite. Let me backtrack a little bit. We have an appetite control area in our brain and the hypothalamus. And that is where a lot of these regulatory hormones are stimulated at. So we have our appetite suppressing hormone, another hormone, which is leptin. And then there, there's many hormones, but these are just a couple of them. So leptin is one of them. So that's the one that tells your brain, okay, I'm full, no longer hungry, stop eating. Right. Um, and then we have ghrelin. So that's a very popular new, new hormone in the last 20 years that we've discovered. And that's the one that stimulates about 30 minutes from 30 minutes to about an hour, two hours before you eat, or you start feeling those hunger pains, ghrelin starts going up. So ghrelin stimulates that appetite stimulating area in the brain. And a lot of times, you know, um, you know, depending if you have other hormone fluctuations going on, like blood sugar issues or insulin resistance, or if you, you know, yo-yo dieted a lot, um, 
um, in, in, in your life, um, you can have lots of fluctuations between your ghrelin and your leptin hormone. So that's what can cause a lot of hunger issues. And um, the other issue is that when, you know, anyone loses weight, especially if you're trying to lose weight from a, from a higher weight to a much lower weight, the body's tendency is always to want to, to regain the weight. And one of, one of the hormones that goes up as you lose weight is ghrelin. Ghrelin starts telling your brain, I'm hungry, you know, let's start increasing those calories wow. again. Why? So it's very complex. It's a very complex. Why does it do that? Yeah. There's <laughs> I know, right? It's not fair. There's, it doesn't mean you can't lose weight and keep it off, but understanding how these hormones work help us, you know, with, um, uh, with the weight maintenance phase, sometimes losing weight is not the hardest part. It's keeping it off for things like this. Maintaining. So I also feel like part of the reason that women hate weighing themselves so much is because depending on what time of month it is, you could be five, eight pounds, like depending on your bloating, your PMS. And it's hard. It's hard to, to look at that. And it's frustrating and we don't understand it. So why as women does our weight fluctuate so much? Um, well, a lot of it, you, you already, you know, you stated there and, you know, we are in a constant hormone flux, right? Throughout the month, estrogen and progesterone, especially if you're, if, you know, if you're still menstruating, um, you know, that can certainly affect one tiredness, fatigue, bloating, you know, you, you, you start, you can accumulate more water, um, especially around the belly area as you're, you know, you're in that ovulatory phase, um, hunger level sometimes can go up also during that time cravings can go up so maybe caloric intake may go up and weight may fluctuate a bit around that time of month um so those are all it's normal and i tell you know i tell my female patients you know i think tracking your weight is important because it helps you stay on some sort of track right um but overly obsessing over the scale is also just not mentally it just it's just not good for you it, it like can derail your progress and sometimes I tell fem- my female patients don't weigh yourself during your menstrual cycle week just just don't do it <laughs> I've I have totally stopped weighing myself all together uh, yeah I'm just like I just don't even want to I have like a general idea of where I'm at but I'm like I fluctuate so much that I'm just like it, it screws with my yeah mind. it's best honestly it's um if you're I think if you're trying to get to you know a certain weight or you want to try to lose weight and the scale is something that just stresses you out, then I tell my patients, just measure yourself, just do, you know, check your waist circumference, do your hip circumference. And I have patients that just don't want to get on the scale. Sometimes they get on the scale in our clinic and they close their eyes and we don't tell them, but we tell them what their measurements are reading and they're happy. They're happy with that. I think that's great. I recently found out um, that you can actually go, when you go to the doctor, you can request to not be weighed and you can ask or, or to not know your weight, yeah. which I think is a really empowering thing for us as women to if we don't want to be weighed we don't have to be weighed because I don't think it always corresponds with your health it it might not always make sense that you need to know right absolutely absolutely um and you spoke earlier too about like muscle mass and how that plays into Mm -hmm. your weight um and a lot of how that how we get our muscle mass is through working out and I know I am um I do this where I'm like I need to work out I just need to do cardio 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 but it's also very important to build that muscle and why is that important to build muscle mass and have that as part of our routine? So building muscle, different reasons. First of all, as we age, everyone, men and women, women more than men though, they tend, you lose lean body mass and your body's tendency is to want to gain fat. So that's why another reason why, you know, as we get older, it's easier to gain weight, right? But muscle mass, building muscle is so important because it, one, it increases your metabolic rate 
rate, meaning the amount of calories that you burn naturally at rest. Um, it serves as a reservoir for fuel, especially for sugar, right? So um, it helps increase our, 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 the amount of calories that we can burn in a day. And it also helps, you know, strength training in general helps also lower your percent body fat and keep your percent body fat at a more normal at a normal um, place. Uh, so yes, cardio is so important for heart health, but I think most people, especially women, underestimate the power of strength training. And a lot of women I have, you know, especially postmenopausal women, it's just so hard, much harder sometimes. For, again, going back to hormones, postmenopausal women sometimes struggle a lot more in, in losing weight. And a lot of it has to do with one, the yo-yo dieting that I mentioned before, really affecting your metabolic rate and having low muscle mass, you know, Know, it's time to start really changing your exercise routine. Don't just run on the treadmill for 30 minutes, start lifting some weight, start build, you know, increase your metabolism that way. And it can really have a big effect on, on, on inches and, and even the scale will move. Yeah. I'm so to that point, I'm interested to get your opinion on this because I was working with a doctor. We didn't really mesh well. I didn't really love her. And then I switched. I have a new doctor that I absolutely love. But I was kind of working with my weight. I have hypothyroid. I have a slow metabolism. And she was kind of of the mind of like, if you work out less, then you can eat less. You'll be less hungry, which is true, <laughs> which is true. But I was like, this is post COVID. My body needs to move more. Like I want to build muscle. I want to be more active. And I kind of dropped her like a hot potato. Oh my but gosh. This is problem. It's not really her fault. No. I'll say. But it just made no sense. And I'm like, I don't want to eat less and, and move less. Like this is not, this is not, but to that point. So right now I'm dealing with a little bit, I have tendonitis in my foot and I can't work out as much as I would like to. And I'm way less hungry. So it's not like it's, you know, you are less hungry when you work out less. Yeah. So I'm just interested in your insight around this. Yeah. I mean, yeah, obviously the more you move, you know, the more, you know, you're going to need to fuel your body, right? This is what, where the eat less, move more doesn't really work that well, right? Because your body gets hungry. Ghrelin goes up. You need to fuel it. So uh, to, to work a way around that, it's again, increased. So we're in adjusting your macronutrients, right? So increasing your protein. Women in general just don't eat enough protein at all. And protein is so powerful for weight loss, for energy, um, you know, for, for, for maintaining and losing weight. So for me on days where I'm more active, so let's say if I'm doing like a run and a strength train, I'm very hungry. So either I'll have some protein before, either in the form of a protein shake if I need something quick, or I'll have like a boiled egg or a can of tuna, or I'll add extra protein with my dinner. I make sure that I add those healthy fats in, I add more fiber. So really have quality, get your calories in from a quality source. And if you can get it mostly from protein, even better, because it's just going to help, um, you know, build the, the, the your, your muscle mass as well. I'm happy to hear this because this is exactly what my new, my new doctor said that I love. Yeah, she was like, okay. I want to make your, give her a thumbs yes, up. Let's give her thumbs up. <laughs> she was like, I actually want to make your body feel extremely safe when it's working out. So we need to make sure we're feeding it a lot of protein, you know, before yes. and after. So it doesn't feel too stressed. Um, yeah, anyway, absolutely. I'm glad to hear you say that. Yeah. 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 This podcast is sponsored by better help. Tina and I love therapy. We are obsessed with it. We're in therapy every week. We don't even know where we would be without it. Like Oprah loves bread. 
We love therapy. That's how we feel about it. And without a healthy mind, being truly happy and at peace, it's hard. So the good news is, and Alex and I can attest to this, therapy works. Okay, so what is therapy? Well, that's up to you. It can be whatever you want it to be. You can talk about dealing with stress in your relationships at work. Maybe you're not feeling very motivated and you'd like some tools to help. Here's the other thing. It's also really time to stop being ashamed of the normal human struggles that we all deal with and just start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. We all deserve to be happy. And now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you, which is truly the hardest part and can be really overwhelming. It really is. It's so convenient because BetterHelp has online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't even have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. And it's way more affordable than going to someone in person, and it's quick. So you can actually start talking to a therapist in under 48 hours. It's always a good time to invest in yourself and your mental health. So join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about. A special offer just for Obsessed listeners. So you can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash obsessed. That's betterhelp.com slash obsessed. Thank you to BetterHelp for sponsoring our podcast. Thank you to Ombre Labs for sponsoring this podcast. Are you struggling with a health issue and you just can't figure out the cause? Your gut might be to blame. Are you struggling with bloating, constipation, abdominal pain, maintaining a healthy weight, a weak immune system, acne, eczema, even your daily happiness and mental health? You can't figure out what the cause is? The answer could literally be found in your gut. So your gut contains trillions of bacteria, both good and bad. And when your body doesn't have enough good bacteria, the bad bacteria flourishes. When this happens, you can start getting these symptoms. Ombre Labs makes it really easy to measure your gut health by offering an at-home test that can measure your bacteria levels. The test will ship straight to your door with easy-to-follow instructions. When you receive your results, Ombre Labs will give you a detailed breakdown of your gut bacteria and the health issues it might be causing and what specific foods you need to consume more or less of to improve your health. They'll even develop personalized probiotics to heal your gut with a subscription. So if you're struggling with any of these symptoms that we mentioned and you just want to see if maybe your gut has the answers, visit tryombre.com obsessed to get $30 off your test. Thank you to Ombre Labs for sponsoring this podcast. I have I have a question a little in that same vein. Do you have a suggestion or, or a preference on like eating before or after working out? And what's your thought on that? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, there's a lot of data on fasted workouts. So if your body, if you, not everyone can do it um, mm-hmm. because it does help, you know, you get, you pushes a little bit more of what's called a ketosis. So you go into more of a, a fat burn. Some people feel more energy actually, you know, working out in a fasted state. So you kind of have to listen to your body when it comes to that. If you're fl- feeling sluggish, if you're having a hard time getting through your workout because you didn't eat before, then maybe having a protein serving before, right? So maybe having, um, you know, that shake or having a boiled egg or something protein dense 
um, some chickpeas, something, some nuts or seeds beforehand um, well, can help you feel. So for that, I think you really just have to listen to how your body feels when you're exercising. It's so, like you said, it's so individual because like I can totally do the fast workout. Alex mm-hmm. cannot. She yeah. has to eat. So yeah, it's just really an individual. And I try. Yeah. I try. I Thanks. tried intermittent fasting and what I found is I love the night part, the not eating after six or seven. It makes me feel great in the morning, but I need breakfast. I would so exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I learned this and I tried to do it and I would do a fasted workout. And afterwards I was so hungry that I was mad. I was like biting off my husband's head. <laughs> I've eaten like three lunches. And I was like, this is not, yeah. this is making me feel like a crazy person. Like I cannot, I'm going to have yeah. a hard boiled egg and half an avocado for God's sake. Like it's not going to kill me. And like, you know, and and I, no. I just can't. But yeah, Tina wakes up not hungry at all. So no. yeah. And it's so, again, everybody's so different, but it's so great that you can keep your eating window. So intermittent fasting is a, you know, there's a lot of data behind this, a lot of controversy too. You'll go on mm-hmm. Twitter and some doctors agree with it. Some doctors don't. I, again, it's very individualized for, for everybody. I think eating windows can really help with maintaining weight and weight loss and helping with cravings too and hunger. Um, whether you keep it at a short window or a longer window, I think definitely stop eating, you know, two to three hours before bedtime can really help with gut, you know, inflammation, you know, staying at a steady weight, reducing hunger cravings, whether at night or in the morning. Um, So intermittent fasting, whatever way you do it, either earlier in the day or later in the day, I think it's a great tool. That's awesome. I mean, I love that and how it really is geared toward the individual and what works for for that person. And I know that you're also really focused on on preventing disease. Mm -hmm. And it seems like not a lot of doctors or like healthcare or health um, medical people are interested in like the why of of some of why we're feeling the way we are. It's all about the symptoms. Let's treat the symptom. Let's prescribe a medication. Why do you think that is that, that the medical community just, it's what it's a quick fix. I think it's a lot of it has to do with when you trained, you know, when did, did you become a physician? I think newer age um, doctors and newer age science is more towards the preventive medicine portion of things. And the other big issue, and this is what, you know, what I struggled with when I was doing general primary care. Now my focus is more weight management and, and managing metabolic diseases, but the time, you know, some doctors, depending on what kind of clinic you went to, uh, you know, there's just was, you know, you have 10, 15 minutes. You don't really have time to go through such detail with patients in terms of preventing disease, you know, going into the more nutrition and lifestyle and what stressors, you know, all the things that I go through with my patients and my visits, because I now am lucky enough to have longer visit times with my patients. It's hard. So I'm getting referred, you know, I'm getting referred patients from primary care because they don't have the time to do it and their patient volume and their patient load is just too high. So I think it really, unfortunately, it comes down to that and how our health system is is um, set up, you know, where volume, especially if you work for a hospital system, they look at your numbers. So you need to see 25, 30 patients a day and you just don't have the time, unfortunately. It's really yes. hard that yeah, set tough. up like that to only have that short window, yeah. you know, and it's not the doctor's fault. It's kind of the structure. Yeah. It's yeah. the structure. Exactly. Exactly. So, and, 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 you know, a lot of doctors are burnt out and they just, and sometimes it's just like, you know, I'm, I'm just not going to 
I don't care at this point. I don't want to do it. Uh, so, and I'm not saying all, not no, every no, no. doctor is like that, but I think the struggles are there. And I think most primary care doctors, you know, especially if they're working for a big hospital system may, you know, will will probably share that same sentiment that it's just, it's challenging with, with time. Can you give us an example of a success story where you helped someone reverse their diabetes or get more metabolically healthy? Obviously you can't give us too many personal details, but can you give us kind of a, just a quick example? Yeah, sure. Sure. I'm actually working with a couple of patients, um, with diabetes now. Well, I work with a lot of patients with diabetes, but, um, a couple that are on insulin and they've been able to get off of it, get off. Wow. Type two diabetes, type one diabetes, you know, is an insulin dependent diabetes. Um, but you know, just being just with nutrition and lifestyle, nutrition and lifestyle, you know, adjusting their macronutrient profile, um, you know, on 50 units of insulin. So insulin is, um, just for a little background, insulin is what you inject is the hormone that regulates blood sugar. When you have uncontrolled diabetes, um, or when your diabetes has been, you know, you've had diabetes for a long time and you're very insulin resistant, meaning the insulin that your own body makes is not um, working um, efficiently, now you need to inject insulin to control your blood sugars, right? But the problem with insulin is that it's it's a weight promoting hormone when you're injected, when you're when you're either producing a lot of it in your body and now injecting it because the role of insulin is to take sugar and store it, right? It takes it to bot- the area of the body that needed for fuel, but it's mostly being stored as fat in different areas of the body. So this is where insulin dependent patients with diabetes, type two diabetes really struggle with their weight. So, and a lot of it comes down to, you know, nutrition and lifestyle, eating the right foods, doing the right exercises, moving. Um, so I've had, I'm actually have several patients most recently in this last week where there, there had one patient who was, I think on 70 units of insulin, he's down to 12 units and we're almost there to, to get him off, off his insulin. And, and he's just feeling, this is actually a patient that has sleep, a lot of sleep issues, narcolepsy, um, obstructive sleep apnea, and even the narcolepsy, which is like the severe daytime sleepiness has improved just with normalizing his blood sugars and, um, and, uh, and losing weight. And typically with patients like that, how, how, what's the time frame? What's the turnaround for seeing results? It's really, again, it's very individualized. It depends on, you know, how strong they want to go in lifestyle changes. Uh, I mean, I've had, you know, this last week, I started working with one patient two weeks ago and every two days he's calling me like my sugar's dropping, my sugar's dropping. I need to, you know, wean off insulin. It can take someone a couple of weeks. It can take someone, a, you know, six months to a year. So it's, 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 it's really different, like how your body responds. So, yeah. So do do you personally have any food um, sensitivities or allergies? And like, what do you typically eat? What's your... I'm not perfect, number one. (laughs) Well, good. Um, I don't really have, thank God, knock on wood, I don't really have too many food um, sensitivities. I can't eat very high, like greasy, high fat, spicy foods. It doesn't, it triggers um, gastritis for me. Um, But... On a typical day, on a good day, I have have a cup of coffee in the morning, almond milk, 
I start my day with protein. So I'll have like a yogurt or two hard boiled eggs in the morning. Um, I keep an eating window. So I would stop eating, you know, by seven, eight o'clock. I pack my lunch, which I don't always do because I'm on the go (laughs) and I have a toddler. Uh, You know, I always try to include greens. I always try to include two to three servings of protein a day. Um, I always try to include those healthy two to three servings of healthy fats, whether it's like a reduced or full fat yogurt or an avocado, olive oil. I always try, I, I, um, my go-to snack is almonds. I have a handful of almonds. And then I have a husband that loves to cook. So I don't have to prepare dinner and he's pretty, he, 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 he does pretty well. So he always has a protein and a vegetable for dinner. So that's a good day for me. A bad day is when I don't eat (laughs) and I get meals and I'm overly hungry. (laughs) Okay. That's me. I I have to eat. Same schedule and a toddler. So, I mean, yeah, I know, I know. So, sometimes, you know, it's just, it's hard. And that's where meal planning, sometimes just prepping. So, on like good weeks, and I tell my patients this, it's just like plan your meals on Sundays. You know, if your week starts on Monday, you know, get your containers going, pack your lunch for the week. And it's going to take, eliminate that one stressor that you have to worry about during the week. And it's going to eliminate you making potentially a bad food choice, you know, going to somewhere fast food or skipping, you know, sometimes skipping a meal is not ideal either because it can create, you know, a lot of hunger and then bad food choices later in the day. I get like such decision fatigue yes. trying to figure out what to eat. So if I plan it out, it's like exactly. Great, I don't and have when to think you get crazy, that. overly yeah. hungry, that's when you grab like literally what's ever in your path, and then you feel like shit yeah. an hour later. Um, yeah. And that's going to happen. You know, it's just like life. It's the life that we live. But if we can try and limit that and just even planning a couple of days earlier in the week, it can, you know, it can really be helpful for overall health. So in terms of having a treat, like a special night, a celebration, I know that I would rather have a martini than a piece of chocolate cake any day or a glass of wine. Like that's what I would rather have than sugar any day. So can you give us some tips? Are there ways to have a cocktail or wine in a healthy way that doesn't spike our blood sugar too much that won't get us so off track. So I'll start off by saying I love wine and I do like to drink. (laughs) Yes. And there's lots of health benefits to wine as well. Um, But I think especially for women, moderation is still key. You know, you know, technically women should be having not more than one alcoholic drink a day. Uh, I try to tell all my patients, but especially my female patients, try to limit it during the week, you know, try to just stay hydrated. Um, You know, even if it's like Monday through Wednesday or Monday through Thursday, try to get a higher quality, you know, a good quality wine, you know, red wines, um, a good dry white wine that's a little bit lower in sugar. If you're having a mixed drink, uh, you know, avoid those high sugary um, um, added uh, like spritzers or try not to add juice and regular soda. Um, stay hydrated too. So if, you, if you're going out to dinner, you know, you're going to go have a couple of drinks, have one drink and then, you know, follow it with a glass of water afterwards because it's really that dehydration that's going to cause, can potentially cause that hangover or, you know, the increased cravings later that night or the next day. Oh, I know it all too well. <laughs> all too well. Oh, I know. Me too. Don't worry. <laughs> good, good. That makes you feel a lot, makes you feel less alone. Um, do you have any tips for someone that is struggling with a sluggish metabolism um, and wants to speed it up? Just something they can start doing? Um, uh, Yeah, I think it's one, uh, you know, sluggish metabolism. That's a good 
term um because their metabolism probably is not sluggish it's probably just you know their energy levels are low because they may not be sleeping well or they not be eating the right foods so i think really identifying what are what are the barriers right you know what what are you what are you struggling with the most what might be affecting um you know that sluggish you know feeling right you, you know chances are you're probably not sleeping well is there stress going on in your life and then target that first and fix that you know a lot of times sleep is so important and a lot of times patients are coming in you know not feeling well, not even, you know, weight or not weight related, even when I was in primary care, anxiety, depression, um, hunger throughout the day. And one of the first questions I ask is, you know, how is your sleep? You know, how many hours a night are you sleeping? And so I think identifying what the first, what's the biggest barrier um, throughout their day and then targeting that and, and, and starting to fix that. That makes a lot of sense. Like when I don't get sleep, I crave like sugar and carbs and like things that are not nutrient dense. Mm -hmm. And then I find that I don't feel good that day. And then that snowballs into the next it day. It totally snowballs. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you personally yeah. have any sort of favorite wellness self-care thing that you do besides the sleep, the nutrition, the working out? Is there a facial in your life that makes you feel good? A massage, a, yo a meditation practice? Is there any sort of extra thing you do for yourself that just makes you feel great? Yeah, um, I think really, so skincare is a big, big one. And I know you, you ladies love and know <laughs> all do. the best tips about skincare. So I don't even know if I know will know as much as you. But that's always that makes me feel good, you know, doing something um, outside of like your normal routine. So for me, it's like getting my nails done every three weeks, you know, getting that pedicure done, um, using my, you know, my favorite lotion at night, um, using my serums in the morning. So those types of things always help me. Um, one thing that I miss from, I guess, pre-pandemic, I haven't yet gone back to any group fitness classes, but, you know, participating in yoga or Pilates, you know, finding something that you really enjoy, um, you know, I, I, I miss that. So I hope to be going back to that soon. I'm the same way. I love the I love group that. classes. I just, the community feel, I feel like you work harder. I think that's more fun. You can actually put yeah. your phone down. You know, it's like in a locker. I know. You can be like, oh, in the middle of workout and your living room be like oh wait did I just get a phone call and then the workout's done you know I know yes. I know I know I miss it you you've been back, I have right? and Alex now I'm so sad I have to take another break yeah. with this injury but yeah before that I was oh, I right. was back and I was so happy so yeah 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 although there's been there's so much now there's a lot yes. of virtual you know things online now mm -hmm. which I enjoy but sometimes I, I miss going back to those group classes so hopefully soon I'll be going back do you have any advice for women who struggle with their body image? Yeah, you know, um, it's a big issue for for many, many women. And I think it's taking a step back and, you know, just really looking at the, the female body, right? What are, what is the, the female body capable of doing and why, why was it created, right? Um, you know, we were meant to carry childs, right? We were meant to feed a child, whether you decide to have children or not. Um, women were meant to be curvy. You know, we are, we have a higher body fat percentage than men for a reason. So sometimes taking a step back and just 
loving the female body in general and just being so mindful of that and being aware of that can sometimes help somebody's body image too, right? But I think for somebody that's really struggling and that's really struggling to make progress is seek out help, you know, seek out help, find a doctor that you trust, find your friend that you trust or your family. And, um, you know, if going, uh, the great online resource too for weight management is the Obesity Medicine Association. So if you go to to Obesity Medicine Association, I think it's .org. There's a find a physician there. So finding a, a doctor that focuses on weight management that knows how to manage, you know, body image disorders and help with the underlying depression, anxiety might be the right route. I love it. Alex and I talk about it all the time on this podcast about help, getting help, asking for support, reaching out. There's such a wonderful community and there's mm-hmm. so many resources at our fingertips mm-hmm. that there's no shame. It's, it's yes, reach out for help and ask for help where you can yeah. support where you Yeah. And I think that, it. you know, so many people are just scared to ask for help, but as many as, you know, sometimes women and especially women and men struggling with their weight are scared to go to their doctor. I think it's becoming a lot more, you know, there's a lot more doctors specializing in obesity medicine. So, that, you know, there's a, oh, it ends my metabolic health and lifestyle medicine and functional medicine. So there's like so many resources out there that, you know, you can find somebody. And if there's someone listening, who's maybe stuck in some bad patterns right now, who, especially after the pandemic, you know, whose life has changed, maybe they're drinking every single night, maybe they're skipping lunch, maybe they're ordering out every single night because, you know, whatever it is, and they want to make a change and they want to get healthier, it's really overwhelming. So can you give Mm -hmm. a few, two to three just actionable steps that someone can do at home this week just to start? So I tell a lot of my patients this because it can be overwhelming, right? There's maybe a lot of different reasons why they may be struggling. So I usually tell patients to write it out. Start off just the old fashioned way, get a pen and paper or a whiteboard and start writing out, you know, what are the biggest things that I'm struggling with? What What's you know, what are the roadblocks that are causing me to be inconsistent, right? Is it the meal prepping? Is it that I have to be up at five o'clock in the morning to be at work? Is it my child's care issue? Is it my husband? Is it my boyfriend? Is it the people around me? Is it that, you know, I just don't have time to prep my meals and then I make bad food decisions. So write it out, you know, um, so that you can really visualize what is it that I need to work on. And if it's a lot of things, pick one, you know, just pick one small change every week. So if it's that I need to go to bed 30 minutes earlier so that I have 30 minutes of extra sleep so that I'm not as tired, whether it's, you know, you're going out for lunch or dinner, you're not prepping any of your meals. Let's start with two days a week. Let's prep two days a week, my lunch, right? If I'm not moving enough or you feel, or you, it's really hard to fit exercise. These are just examples, but if you are having a hard time to fit exercise in something simple, like if you're in the city or in a, ma- a major city, I'm going to, you know, walk, get out of my train stop or bus stop a stop earlier, or I'm going to use the stairs to go up, you know, um, to get to my office. So just make start small, you know, some people can make lots of big changes all at once and that's great. But if you're finding that making a lot of big changes at once becomes overwhelming, you could do it for a week or two and then you derail, then just start small, start with small steps every week. And really those small baby steps is what you can build for um, a lot more long-term success. And I have patients that do really 
really, really well where we set, you know, a small goal every month. They achieve that goal. Sometimes they surpass it. Sometimes they just meet that goal. And then we, we adjust it at the next visit. That's such good advice. <laughs> I'm totally the person that's like, okay, I'm going to change my life today. And like everything. Ch- and then I burn out within the first yeah. week. And then I'm like, well, screw it. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do it at all. But if just like one thing, just one, just thing, one thing. And that's your focus. Yeah. I could do that. Um, This has been so enlightening. We've got a few more like rapid fire sure. questions, like fun questions for you. Um, We touched on this a little bit, but we're going to get a little bit more specific. What are two beauty products mm. that you just cannot live without? Because your skin is glowing. <laughs> You have the most beautiful skin. And your hair is like flowing like a beautiful mermaid. Like you are yes, so beautiful. Can I be on your podcast every week? Please? Every week. Every, you are a land mermaid. Yes. Um, it's funny because I was at Ulta yesterday and I, and I, the lady that was, so I like to ch- test, test out new like makeup products every so often. So I was buying a new face cream. But one thing that I've been using since I was 15 and I told this to the Ulta lady yesterday is good old Clinique, which is like, I love Clinique. They have such great products. I've been using their their specific sheer, um, what is it? It's like their face powder. It's their sheer matte face powder. And it's a really light powder. I use every day as just like my base powder to go to work, to go to school when I was in school, literally since I was 15. My mom bought it for me when I was 15. I'm still using it 15 plus years later. If it ain't broke, you know, if it ain't broke. It just works. Yeah. It's working Mm -hmm. for you. Yeah. Yeah. So the other one is um, I use this um, Hydro Boost really cheap. It's like $13 Neutrogena. Um, do you do you use that? They're quenching. We love it. Love it. Oh Tina my used it. So when we were roommates, Tina was using it way back when. Yeah. She was like, you have to try this. She's like, your skin is just going to feel so plump. And I started using it too. It's a great, that's a great one. It's my next purchase because I'm almost out of my, yeah. my day cream and I'm like, nope, I'm going back to the Hydro Boost. Yeah, it's so great. My it's mother-in-law so bought it for me a couple of years ago and I just, and it's like $13 at CVS. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's so good. It is good. It is good. So I use that day and and night. I think those are probably my two. And a vitamin C serum. I recommend all women to use a vitamin C serum. So I'm using the Murad right now. You're using the Murad vitamin C? Mm-hmm. Okay. It's a little bit more pricey, um, but I think splurging on a couple of few, you know, face products also makes you feel good inside. So yeah, that's my little that. You can buy a really high quality face serum, but then you don't need to spend a million dollars on your, your cleanser. Exactly. You know, because it's just, you're taking it off your face. But you know, if you can mix and match yeah. with different things and it it's, we love that. Yeah. We love that. Yeah. yeah. We talk about that a lot, the mixing high and low. And also vitamin C is really expensive. So that's the place to splurge. And then you can get like a five dollars something from the ordinary or right. mix it with a drugstore like that's kind of the way to do it I love that yeah yeah I agree with you 100 percent. yeah <laughs> so is there a woman that you can think of who's really inspiring to you that you think that we should know about that we might not know that we should follow her we should know about her so hmm I think most actually I just learned about this movement from this kind of sounds kind of out of word, but Queen Latifah. Yeah. And we're talking about, you know, um, the obesity movement and women's image and body image. I don't know if you're aware, but Queen Latifah is actually recently starter started a bigger than me movement. So if you Google bigger than me, I think it's the website, I think 
it's bigger. It's bigger than .com. I just searched it here. Bigger than .com. Um, and she is one of the leads of this movement. And I think they have a hashtag as well. And she is talking a lot about weight bias. She's got a ton of videos online um, about weight bias and body image. And she talks a lot about how it has affected her to also get to a healthier weight. So I think a lot of women can really um, relate to her. So if you can get her on your podcast. Oh my God, goals. I have loved Queen Latifah. Oh my, absolutely. Definitely. That's such a good resource. I had no idea that's what she was up to. I I recently learned this a couple of weeks ago and I've been, you know, I quickly searched her and started following her and the Bigger Than Me movement. And I think it's really, really wonderful that that she's doing that. Um, So that's one. And then I think female doctors and female scientists, unfortunately, they just don't promote themselves as much as they should. But there's another doctor. um, She's actually one of the science directors at Mass, the Weight Management Center at Mass General, Dr. Fatima Cody. And she also, and she's live on Instagram and on Twitter. She's pretty active on, on those two platforms. And she really promotes a lot about weight bat bias, eliminating weight bias, weight stigma, health disparities, especially during the COVID pandemic. Um, So she's a real pretty amazing, she's published a lot. She's a pretty big speaker in the medical world, especially in the obesity medicine world. So she would be someone to, to also consider following on Instagram and social media. Fabulous. Yeah. Well, speaking of following on social media, where can we find you and where can we follow you? Yeah. So I have an Instagram that I try to be as active as I can. Sometimes I'm boring, but I'm trying to be better about it. Um, I'm, I'm on Instagram at the metabolic doc. I'm on Twitter. Also Dr. Stephanie page. You can find me on LinkedIn um, as well. So I try, I try to post at least once or twice a week and I'm trying to be more engaging for my patients and my followers. So you can find me there. Stephanie, awesome. thank you yeah. so much for sharing yeah, all of this. Thank you for having me. This was Just so th- fun. It was so fun. It was so fun. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. And so informative. Thank yes, you. Thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. This is great. Yes. Don't forget to follow, rate, and review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more content, make sure to subscribe to us on YouTube, Patreon, and give us a follow at Obsessed with the Best Pod on Instagram and TikTok. Hosted on dimlywit.com.